Well, Lord, speak to us this morning through the Word of God. May we be open to the Holy Spirit's incisive Word to each of us today. I pray in your Son's precious name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians 14, if you have your Bibles and the study outline you can grab from inside your worship folder there. Let me ask you this. How many of you who are parents have ever looked at maybe your teenager in your home and said something like, Hey, buddy, you need to grow up. It's time to grow up. You ever said that? You're acting like a little kid. That was cute when you were a little kid, but now that you're six foot tall and shaving, it's not cute anymore to wing your food across the room or, you know, collapse in a heap on the floor in a temper tantrum. Not cool anymore. Time to grow up. If you've ever said that to your student in your home, how did that go over? How was it received? (laughs) Probably not real well. No one wants to be thought of as immature or childish. Most of us would get defensive and kind of put the gloves on if someone talked to us like that. But the truth is that even full-grown adults can sometimes be childish and whiny and act in selfish, immature ways. It was Sunday morning, and a wife noticed that her husband wasn't getting up to go to church, and so she started jostling him in the bed there to get him to wake up. And he let out a moan and then turned over and buried himself deeper under the covers. Come on, honey, it's Sunday. We need to get ready to go to church. I don't want to go to church, he whined. I'm too tired to go to church today. But it's Sunday, she insisted. We always go to church on Sunday. I know, but I don't feel like going today. Honey, come on. You need to get up and get ready. Please don't make me go, he pleaded. I don't feel like going. Besides, people there expect me to dress up, and I don't feel like dressing up today. Honey, his wife insisted, you have to go to church today. You're the pastor. Sometimes we just need to grow up. And that is the very message that the Apostle Paul is giving to the Corinthians in the section that we're looking at in this letter today. And he begins with a strong call to grow up in their thinking, the call to mature thinking. Would you read out loud with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking... Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So it's okay to be naive or innocent when it comes to your experience of sin and evil, but in your thinking, in your mindset, he challenged them, grow up, be mature. You know, I've come to believe that the measure of spiritual maturity is not how old you are or even how many years you've been a Christian. You can be 60 years old and still be immature. I know people who have been saved for 30 years or more and are still kind of immature in their faith, infants. On the other hand, I've met brand new believers who've only been saved for a few months who surprise me with their spiritual maturity. The measure of spiritual maturity is not how long a person has been saved, but how much like Jesus they have become how selfless they are, how much they are focused on other people. Looking back through 1 Corinthians, we can see how childish thinking differs from mature thinking because it's been a recurring theme all throughout this letter. 
Those who are immature in their thinking say, you know, look at me. Look at me. It's all about me. Those who are more mature say, look at him. Look at him. Those who are immature think, you know what? Others should serve me. Others should cater to me and my whims and my desires and my tastes. But those who are mature say to themselves, you know what? I need to serve others. I need to serve them. Immature thinkers think, you know, I can do whatever I want. Those who are mature think, I need to do whatever builds you up, whatever builds up other people and strengthens others. Those who are childish, immature think, I got to have my way. Those who are mature think, I don't have to get my way. I can yield. I don't have to always be first or come out on top. Those who are childish and immature think, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of how it affects anybody else. But those who are mature think, I will gladly limit myself and my freedoms even for the sake of others. Those who are immature think, I'm going to feel superior to others. I'm going to look down on others who don't agree with me on every little point. Whereas those who are mature say to themselves, I can agree to disagree without being disagreeable. Those who are immature think, I am my own authority. No one's going to tell me what to do or tell me how to live my life. But those who are mature feel safe under the umbrella of authority. And they're under God's authority and the human authorities that God has put over them. You know, I wonder, I wonder where you and I might fall this morning on the scale of spiritual maturity. I wonder what the Lord would say to you. Would he say, you know what, you're making great progress. You're, you're growing up. You're becoming mature. You're becoming more and more like my son. You're becoming more selfless and others-oriented like my son is. Maybe the Lord would say that to you. I hope he would. Or might he say, hey, buddy, <laughs> you're still pretty self-centered. Have you noticed that? You're still pretty childish, and that's pretty unchristlike. You need to grow up. Well, that's what Paul was saying to the church at Corinth. You need to grow up in your thinking. And then he proceeded to identify several areas of grown-up thinking that he wanted to urge on that church. And the first area is this one we've been talking about. It's the area of grown-up thinking when it comes to speaking in tongues in the church, in the worship assembly. Now, remember what was going on in that church and in their services. Members who possessed miraculous gifts like speaking in tongues were apparently jumping up to their feet during the service, speaking in unknown languages, kind of showing off and drawing attention to themselves, in effect saying, hey, look at me, look at what I can do. And we've seen in this chapter, Paul's been building this case that spiritual gifts were actually given to build others up, not draw attention to self. Therefore, if people just get up and start to speak in tongues during a church service without any interpretation as to what it means, he would contend that's a misuse of that gift because it doesn't really benefit anybody except the one who's speaking. Since no one understands what's being said, no one can say amen. And so the implication is that if you continue to do this, it reveals immaturity, it reveals self-centeredness, thus his challenge to grow up. Now, It's possible that some in that church might have been justifying what they were doing by saying something like this. Well, God actually uses my speaking in tongues as an evangelism tool. 
We have unbelievers who come to our worship services, and when they hear me and others get up and start speaking in unknown languages, they are amazed by this, and they will be compelled to trust Jesus as their Savior, Jesus, the one who gave us this ability. So we should continue to speak in tongues in our worship gatherings because it benefits the seekers who are present. It's a tool for winning them to Christ. Some may have been saying that. And I believe Paul anticipated that line of reasoning. Listen to the grown-up thinking that he wants to impart to those folks. Verse 21. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That is a quote from Isaiah chapter 28. Verse 22, thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? The Greek word is idiotes. Will they not say that you are crazy, nuts? Ignorant, maybe even possessed. Now, like so much in this chapter, these verses are very, very difficult to interpret. In my studies, I found no less than seven different interpretations of what Paul means here. There's a lot of disagreement on what Paul was trying to get across. So once again, I'm going to give you my understanding, my interpretation, with the caveat that I could be wrong. I could be mistaken. So, you're going to need to follow me here, okay? You probably know that during Israel's history, back in the Old Testament era, God often used other nations to carry out judgments against his own people when they had grown hard-hearted and rebellious and unbelieving. You know this, right? God used other nations to come against Israel and judge his own chosen people when they were stiff-necked and unbelieving and hard-hearted, and when they refused to listen to his prophets that he would send them again and again and again. At various times, God incited the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and other neighboring nations to come against Israel and take them captive as his judgment for their unbelief and sin and rebellion. That was actually part of God's covenant with them, the old covenants recorded back in the book of Deuteronomy. So when neighboring armies were drawn in to invade Israel during those times, the Israelites would find themselves surrounded by foreigners, soldiers who were speaking a foreign language. So they would hear people talking in a language that they didn't understand. You follow this? And that would be a sign to them when a hard-hearted, rebellious Israelite would hear people around him speaking in unknown languages. God intended that to be a sign to unbelieving Israelites, that he was not happy with them. He was not happy with their sin and rebellion and unbelief and their refusal to listen to his prophets who he kept sending them. It was a sign that they would be swept away into captivity at the hands of foreign armies. And by the way, those foreign armies were simply the unwitting servants of God in carrying out his purposes. So hearing unintelligible speech then was a negative sign to unbelieving Israel, a sign of God's impending judgment. 
And sadly, even though they knew this, and even though they were carried off into captivity, many times they still refused to humble themselves and repent and return to the Lord. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21, Paul takes that biblical precedent for, for Israel, recorded in Isaiah 28, and he very interestingly applies it to the situation there in Corinth. I believe he did this to disarm those who were claiming that their speaking in unknown tongues in church was a positive and effective evangelism tool used by God to bring unbelievers to faith in Jesus. I believe that Paul was saying this, in effect. Tongues are a sign for unbelievers, all right, but not a positive sign. If unbelievers enter your worship service and come in and hear this cacophony of noise that is unintelligible and doesn't make any sense to them, they're going to conclude that you are crazy, that you are out of your minds, maybe even possessed, your speaking in tongues in the way that you're doing this is going to confuse them and end up driving them away from church and Christ and Christians and Christianity. Instead of winning them, it's going to result in their ultimate rejection of Christ and their subsequent judgment. That is my best shot at understanding what Paul is saying here. So, he is contending that while uninterpreted tongues is a negative sign for unbelievers who might be in church, since it likely will confuse them and drive them away, the gift of prophecy, on the other hand, is a positive sign for believers that God is present, that God is here, that God is speaking to his people, that God is blessing his people. And prophecy, while being mostly for believers, has the added benefit that for Unbelievers who might show up to a church service, even though its primary purpose is not for them, it can have a positive effect in their lives. Look at what he says next in verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face. He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying that in a gathering where God's people are receiving from God and sharing prophetic messages from God, genuine prophetic messages, that unbelievers who are present will sense the presence of God and will feel convicted of their sins and will turn to God. And it may even be that a prophecy will be given that shocks them by revealing their secret sins. In which case the experience will be so intense and so moving that the unbeliever will actually fall on his face and worship God and be totally convinced that God is alive and present among the believers. I take that to mean that conversion has happened in the heart of that unbeliever. So what we have here is prophetic evangelism in the church service. And so in church, speaking prophetic messages, which I believe here includes both speaking messages from God's holy word and sharing spontaneous messages from the Lord, that can actually draw unbelievers to the Lord, while tongues with no interpretation is going to drive them away. And so this again reinforces Paul's contention that prophecy trumps tongues 
in the worship assembly because of its benefit to both believers and unbelievers. Now, I think this is truly amazing and beautiful when I thought about it. The Lord of the church desires to use what happens in a worship gathering, not only to bless and build up believers, but also to convict and convince unbelievers. And we have a part in that happening by what we do, what we say, what we allow, and what we emphasize when we come together. And that brings us to a second aspect of grown-up thinking that he's going to address, and that's grown-up thinking about seeker-sensitive services. Have you ever heard that term before? Seeker-sensitive services. And I want to point out something. That in this passage, did you notice that Paul assumes that there will be occasions when unbelievers come to church, when unbelievers are in the worship assembly? He says, if an outsider or an unbeliever enters. And when that happens, he urges Christians to be sensitive to their non-Christian friends even to the point of refraining from certain activities that will be confusing to them. So if you've ever heard the term seeker-sensitive, this is a scripture where that concept is found. And Paul here is basically rebuking the Corinthians for not being sensitive to their seeking friends who had showed up at church. Now, I have come to believe that there's been some harm done in the name of seeker sensitivity. I, think, I do think that some churches have gone way too far when it comes to making their services seeker sensitive or trying to attract non-believers to come to their churches. Raffling off a brand new SUV or an Alaskan cruise or a Caribbean vacation seems a little over the top in my estimation. Turning church services into a show Pure entertainment ultimately backfires when it comes to fostering spiritual appetite for truth. And certainly if a church waters down the message of the gospel or takes the edge off of it in order to make it more palatable or less offensive, then that's an abuse of the biblical view of seeker sensitivity. True seeker sensitivity, as Paul practiced it, was to make sure worship gatherings were not chaotic and confusing to someone who is there as a guest checking out Christianity in Christ. The seeker sensitivity that Paul urged involves speaking clearly and intelligibly so people can understand God's truth, and it involved creating an environment conducive to the Lord speaking to people so they would sense that he's near. They would sense that he's in the room. They would feel his presence. True seeker sensitivity has as its goal not to impress unchurched people with how hip, cool, and trendy we are, but rather to give them an understanding of God's truth and the opportunity to experience and sense his presence. Perhaps you are here today with us as a seeker, as someone who is checking out Christians and Christianity and church. And we want you to know, if that's you today, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Not sure what got you here. Maybe somebody invited you, a friend perhaps. Maybe there's something going on in your life that's rocking you to your core. 
And you're starting to realize, I need, I need more than I got. Maybe somebody drug you here. I don't know. But you're here, and we are glad that you're here. We want you to know that. Maybe you just feel like you need a change. Maybe you're just curious. But I want to make several pledges to you, okay? If you're here checking out Christianity. Number one, we will not judge you here. We will not judge you here. You can wear whatever you want to church. I mean, it ought to cover up basic things, but we have no formal dress code here in this church. You can wear what you want, okay? If you have some bad habits, that doesn't bother us. Most of us have bad habits too. If you have some junk in your past that you're ashamed or embarrassed about, welcome to the club. We all have stuff in our past we're ashamed and embarrassed about. We are not your judge. Only God is the righteous judge of all the earth. And so we'll let him do his job. We will not judge you. We all have junk in our lives we're ashamed of. Even those of us who've been in church for years. The believers who are seated around you right now do not claim to be perfect, but they do claim to be forgiven. Not on their own merit, but based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for them. So we will not judge you. That's our pledge. Second, we'll do our best to point you to Jesus and his cross. That is our main message to you. Our main message to you is not behave better. Our message to you is that Jesus behaved perfectly and then went to a cross and suffered and bled and died to pay for your sins and ours. And then he rose from the grave to prove he was the son of God. And he offers salvation and forgiveness and eternal life to any and all who will repent of their sins and put their trust solely in his sacrifice. That is our main message. And we pledge to point you to Jesus and his cross. And third, we'll do our best to not water down the main message. You wouldn't want that anyway. When we talk about God and Jesus and the Bible and sin and righteousness and heaven and hell, we're not going to back off of that. We're not going to water it down. We're not going to take the hard edge off it to make it more palatable. We're going to give it to you straight, and then you can make your decision about Jesus Christ. That's our pledge to you. And we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Well, Paul is pushing for maturity in the Corinthian church and in us. He's advocating for more grown-up thinking about the gift of tongues, about being sensitive to the seekers among us here in worship. And now, some grown-up thinking about orderly worship, number three. Notice verse 26. What then, brothers? Kind of like he's saying, what, what gives, guys? When you come together, everybody has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So here again, we get a, a glimpse, a sense of what was going on in their church services. Apparently, multiple people were getting up and all apparently talking at the same time trying to speak over each other, shout each other down. Some were speaking in unknown languages that just kind of added to the chaos and confusion. Their services weren't doing much to build up believers, much less 
convince unbelievers of anything other than the craziness of Christians. You know, some people have the notion that the more chaotic and freewheeling the worship service, the more spirit-filled the church is. They think spirit-filled equals having no plan, being totally spontaneous, not giving any thought to what should happen, and not putting any constraints on what does happen. And let's admit it, it is certainly possible to structure the Holy Spirit right out of a church service. It is possible to do that, to be so committed to our our plan and our routine and all of that, that the Holy Spirit is stifled from doing anything out of the ordinary. Let us guard against that. But the other extreme is equally unfruitful, which is to have no plan, no sequence, no order, no constraints, to throw all that out the window in the name of being led by the Spirit. You know, it's instructive that for the Corinthians, for that church, being more Spirit-led meant being more orderly, reining in some of the disruption and chaos that was going on in their services. That's what being spirit-led meant for them. And so Paul, the church planner, the one who founded that church, the one who was an apostle who spoke with authority, does some correcting here. He injects some order and sequence into their worship services so that they are of more benefit to more people. And he specifically places some constraints on speaking in tongues in the worship service. He gives four guidelines as to how that gift was to be used publicly. Number one, two or three, two or three at most, he says. Not dozens, a few. They should speak one at a time, which tells us that that's what was not happening there. Third, there must be an interpretation for it to be intelligible and understandable to others. And fourth, if no one claims to be able to interpret, then the tongue speaker should be silent in church and limit his or her tongue speaking to private devotions. Interesting to me is that there's an assumption here that the person speaking in tongues can control it, can control how and when they speak in tongues. And so there's this dynamic tension between the Holy Spirit who gives the gift and the believer who is exercising that gift. Those are held in tension. Now, personally, just to be honest, I've never seen or heard the gift of tongues expressed in a worship gathering in this way. I've seen the uninterpreted version of tongues expressed in a confusing and chaotic way, much like was probably happening there in Corinth, but the limited, orderly, sequential tongue speaking with interpretation It gives a message that builds up the whole church. I've never seen it done like that in the churches that I have experience in. Now, I have friends who have seen it done like that, and they say when it's orderly and done like this and interpretation is given, it can be a beautiful thing. I'm just telling you, I haven't seen it in my life. So Paul is pressing the Corinthians for more order and less confusion and chaos in their worship gatherings. But his intent is not to usher the Holy Spirit out the door, but rather to help them see that their worship gathering should reflect the very nature and character of God himself, the God they worship. We'll see that more clearly next weekend when he says God is a God of order and peace and not a God of confusion. So we'll stop here for today.
Now, next weekend, we will finish up 1 Corinthians 14. And in this, the passage next weekend is the phrase, and let women be silent in the church. And so you will want to be here next week. We will be passing out muzzles at the door for all the women. No. Husbands love your wives, yes. I'm going to give you my understanding, my interpretation in the context of what Paul was trying to get across for that, so you will want to be here next week. So what's in here for us? Well, let me mention a couple things. Let's strive to be grown up in our thinking. Amen? I mean, that's his whole point. Be mature in your thinking. We all have a self-centered bent, but let's allow the gospel of Jesus Christ taking root in our hearts to move us out beyond ourselves and think about others. Think about how our actions impact others. In the way we minister our gifts to them, in the way we conduct ourselves here in worship, in the way we think about our unbelieving friends who need Christ, let's be both governed by the Word of God and led by the Spirit of God who wrote the word of God and is not schizophrenic. May the Lord keep us from excesses and extremes that don't please him, while at the same time leading us to be open to receive everything that he has and wants for us. Man, this takes mature thinking to to flesh this out, to keep from the extremes and to be balanced. And to say, Lord, we don't want to get off into this extreme or this extreme, and yet we want everything you have for us. Every gift you would have for us. Every experience you would want us to experience to draw closer to you. We want that, Lord. Man, it takes takes maturity to experience that kind of balance in our Christian walk. But that's the balance of agape. Agape of love for others. In just a few moments, we're going to partake of the Lord's table together. And we do it in different ways here. Uh, This morning, we're going to do it. There are going to be couples who are going to have, and there they go right now to get ready. Couples, one will have a goblet of juice and the other will have a, I think like a half of a loaf of bread and As a church body, we're going to partake of those elements that remind us of the sacrifice of Christ. But I want to say something to all of us first in preparation for that. You know, a few weeks ago, I shared a word, a prophetic word, I believe, for this congregation from the Lord. It went something like this, that the Lord desires to entrust us with more spiritual power in our lives. I really believe that. He wants to entrust you and me with more spiritual power in our lives. Boldness in witnessing for him. Being that light, that ambassador that that many of us want to be for him. Boldness. Power to say no to to sin and and temptation and the, the, the stuff that's been beating us up and eating our lunch. Power to say no to that stuff and yes to Christ. Power in our prayers so that when we pray for people, things happen. Things happen. People get healed. People get blessed. Lives get transformed because of our prayers. 
I truly believe that God is saying a new life. I, I, I have spiritual power I want to entrust you with, and it is an entrustment, which means that he wants to be able to trust us with it. And the condition was, if you will cast down your idols. He wants to entrust us with more spiritual power if we will cast down our idols. And you say, well, Steve, I don't have a shrine in my home, you know, with an idol set up there that we, our family kneels down and worships before. I don't have that. I don't either. But do you have something in your heart or do I have something in my heart that has usurped God's rightful place on the throne of my heart? Is that why there's not the measure of spiritual power in your life or maybe in mine that we would like to see because maybe unwittingly we've embraced an idol? Maybe something good. You know, not evil. Just something that's slowly over time taken God's place. You say, well, how do I know if something's become an idol? Well, if you find your greatest delight in it, it could be an idol. If you find this is the thing you look forward to, this is the thing you run to when you're down, that very well could be a sign that that thing has become an idol. Your greatest joy in life comes from that that you cherish the most and that I cherish the most. An idol can be anything. A relationship, a job, a material possession, a car, a hobby, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. It can be anything that takes God's place of supreme preciousness in our hearts. You know, we're the people of God, aren't we? God's people put God first. First. And when we don't, the Bible calls it idolatry. And I think the Lord is standing on the brink of heaven saying, New Life Church, I want to entrust you with more spiritual power if you will topple the idols in your hearts. I want to be on the throne of your heart. I want to be your supreme joy and delight. I want to be the person you run to when you're down, the the person you look forward to meeting with most. I want to be the Lord of you again. Will you topple your idols, confess and repent, and reinstate me as the supreme cherished treasure of your heart. And so as we get ready to observe this ordinance that reminds us of what Jesus suffered for us, I'm going to ask all of us to bow our heads right now and ask the Lord to reveal to us, what are the idols in my heart, Lord, that are preventing me from experiencing more of your spiritual power? What is it? I mean, all of this series we've been saying, the Lord wants to give his people messages. Well, ask him, Lord, speak to me. What is the functional substitute savior that I have selected to sit on the throne of my heart? And when he shows it to you, see it for what it is. A rival to Jesus for your deepest affections. Let it go. And Father, I must do the same. 
We are your people, Lord. We are the people of God, of, of New Life Church. And yet, there are some of us, maybe many, many of us, who count something else to be more valuable than you in our lives. And Lord, it doesn't make any sense. It's incongruent with who we are and who we've been called to be. And not only that, it's unsatisfying and disappointing because nothing and no one else is the bread of life. We confess as a people our sin to you, Lord. We confess, we admit, we own our sin. By your grace today, through the power of your spirit, we repent of running after other gods, being all enamored and caught up with other things instead of with you. And in our repentance, would you please come again and take your rightful place as king of our hearts, supreme ruler and lover of our souls. And then as you see fit, would you entrust us with ever-increasing measures of your spiritual power that we might live the way you've called us to live. Thank you for hearing our prayers of confession offered in Jesus' precious name. Amen.